0: Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsummerset.com. there, I guess. In other words, all these different people were asked, why does God allow pain and suffering? And I suppose everybody's got an opinion about that. The truth is, we really don't know. And if I told you, I don't think it would satisfy most of you, probably me included. The reality is we desperately want to know, don't we? We want to make sense of this world. We want to make sense of why did that happen and why did I have to go through that and why are they having to go through this and so on and so forth. And uh, the thing is, we want to know and other people are willing to tell us what they think. It happened to Job and it'll happen to you as well. Uh, Job, uh, we're in the book of Job in the Bible. It's right before Psalms, if you want to turn there. Um, Job basically uh, lost his family and his possessions all in one day. He lost uh, all the cattle, all the flocks, all the herds, all of his possessions. And he had 10 kids. And they all died in this tragic accident in the same day. And all of this news hit Job just wave after wave after wave. And can you imagine experiencing something like that? Enough misery in several lifetimes, and it all happened in one single day. After seven days of silence, surrounded by three friends, uh, Job began to speak. At first, there was a discussion, and we looked at that last week, about what happened. And the big question was, why? why? Why is this happening to Job? And why is he suffering? And why is he in such pain? Uh, today, we're going to pick up round two of Job and his friends, and it moves really from discussion to debate. Uh, we're going to look at the second conversation Job has with his three friends, and it moves from discussion to uh, debate. Uh, the debate really is about one thing. What does God do to the righteous and the wicked? Okay, How does God treat the righteous and the wicked? And And they've got some very clear beliefs here and they don't understand Job. Uh, I I love what Warren Wiersbe, here's a quote for you, I love what he said. He said, during this second round of speeches, the fire becomes hotter as the three friends of Job focus more on proving him wrong than giving him help. And you're you're gonna see that as we go through this today, they're trying to prove Job wrong. Job says, I'm innocent, I haven't done anything wrong, I don't know why this is happening to me. And everything in their worldview says, Job, you're wrong. You're lying. You had to have done something. Even if we don't know it, God knows it because there's no other explanation as to why all this bad stuff would happen to you. You see, what's really at stake is the friends of Job, their own peace of mind is at stake. Uh, They don't want to surrender to the idea that if Job is not a sinner being punished by God, then their understanding of God is all wrong. And, and if it can happen to him, then it can happen to them. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at today. See, Job's friends, instead of ministering to him through encouragement, they began to argue with him about what his problem was. Uh, look, if you will, in Job 15, we're going to jump into this. I want to help you answer the question, how did Job cope with his pain and suffering? Look, if you will, in Job 15, You find find friend number one, Eliphaz, and Eliphaz, as I introduced last week, he continues to blame Job, and now he's challenging Job. In other words, prove me wrong, Job, but I know you're wrong. I I know it's your fault. Uh, It's it's all because of what you did. And so in Job 15, look in verse 9. I'll give you just a a quick sample of what Eliphaz is saying. Job 15, verse 9. Here's what he says. He's challenging Job. What do you know? that we don't. What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the elderly are with us, older than your father. Are God's consolations not enough for you? Even the words that deal gently uh, with you? Why has your heart misled you and why do your eyes flash as you turn your anger against God and allow such words to leave your mouth? In other words, the leaf saying Job. Hush, man. You don't know any more than we do, and you know we can go to the aged, and we can we can ask for wisdom from them. And uh, Job, every time you know you open up your mouth, we hear anger. Your heart's misled you. Uh, Why are you even saying the things you're saying? Uh, You have no one to blame but yourself. That's the message, and that's what Eliphaz is saying to Job. Can you imagine having a friend like that when you're hurting? your darkest day ever, and they're saying, well, man, it's your fault. I don't know why you're moping around for. I don't know what you're griping for. It's, it's all your, your fault. You're the problem. I mean, that's not exactly the friend you want, but that's what Eliphaz is doing. How does Job respond to this? Look in the next chapter. Job 16. Look in verses 1 through 5. Job answers, I have heard many things like these. You are all miserable comforters. Is there no end to your empty words? What provokes you that you continue testifying? If you were in my place, I could also talk like you. I could string words together against you and shake my head at you. Instead, I would encourage you with my mouth, and the consolation from my lips would bring relief. Many times that's how hurting people feel. Um, They hear the same things over and over, and they're like, you know, I could say that, You need to, you know, give me something I need. Give give me some hope. Give me some encouragement. Uh, And and Job is saying, y'all are miserable comforters. Uh, You've got empty words. Why do you keep talking? And then he goes on in verse 15. uh, Chapter 16, go on down to verse 15. And here's how Job feels. He says, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin. I have buried my strength in the dust. My face has grown red with weeping, and darkness covers my eyes, although my hands are free from violence and my prayer is pure. Earth do not cover my blood. May my cry for help find no resting place. Even now, now watch this, even now my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is in the heights. Um... My friends scoff at me as I weep before God. I wish that someone might argue for a man with God just as anyone would for a friend. Even in the midst of his despair, even in the midst of his brokenness, here is Job saying, I even now have a witness in heaven. Even now I have an advocate. Uh, And I wish that there might be somebody that could argue for me with God just like a friend would stand up for his friend. Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but that's Job. And hint, he says, Eliphaz, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. Well, that's friend number one. Then there's friend number two, Bildad. And friend number two, Bildad, the last time we looked at him, he basically said, Job, the reason why this happened is your kids sinned. Yeah, he went there. He said that. Can you imagine that? Sometimes you'll, you'll hear some crazy things that uh, are, uh, are insulting And they add insult to injury. And this is Bildad. He's one of those uh, folks that adds insult to injury. And here Bildad continues to point out that sin, regardless of whose it is, is the cause for Job's suffering. And he's pretty sure he knows who the sinner is. It's either Job or his kids or maybe it's both. Well, look, if you will, in Job 18. And let's look at what Bildad says in verse 1. Job 18, verse 1. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, replied... How long until you stop talking? Show some sense and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle, as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, should the earth be abandoned on your account or a rock be removed from its place? Yes, the light of the wicked is extinguished. The flame of his fire does not glow. And he goes into vivid Poetry to describe what happens to the wicked. Ultimately, they are judged and they are destroyed. And if you'll go on down there in in uh, chapter uh, uh, eighteen to verse twenty-one, it sums it up in verse twenty-one. Indeed, such is the dwelling of the unjust man, and this is the place of the one who does not know God. So Bildad's speech is very, very short, and he basically says, "Job, how long are you going to keep talking? Hush, man, hush." We know that God judges the wicked. We know that they will one day be judged by God. And he paints these vivid pictures of what that looks like. And then he ends the chapter saying, indeed, this is what happens to the unjust man, the wicked person. In other words, Bildad is very convinced that someone has sinned. And that's why this has happened. And Job, I think it's your fault. Uh, He's not budging on that. So what does Job say to friend number two, Bildad? There in chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. Then Job answered, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? You've humiliated me ten times now and you mistreat me without shame. And then go on down to verse 5. If you really want to appear superior to me, and would use my disgrace as evidence against me, then understand that it is God who has wronged me and caught me in His net. And then, go on down to uh, verse 23. I wish, Job says, I wish that my words were written down, that they were recorded on a scroll, or were inscribed in stone forever by an iron stylus and lead. But I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he will stand on the dust. And even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. Probably some of the greatest words of hope come out of the darkest days of despair. And Job is on this roller coaster Most of the time you hear his lows, you hear the groans of his pain and his sorrow and his suffering, but every once in a while he scales the heights just like a roller coaster and he makes a a profound statement that just allows you to peek into his soul. How does this man do it? How does he continue to focus on God? How does he choose to be faithful to God? Even when the tragedy of a lifetime strikes, how can he continue to focus on God and worship God? How can he do it? Well, here is a glimpse of it in uh, chapter 19 when he says these words in verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end, he will stand on the dust. He will stand on the earth. And even though my skin is destroyed and my flesh, I will see God and I can't wait for that day. That's pretty amazing stuff, but that's what Job cries out. And then there's friend number three. Friend number three is Zophar, and Zophar is very dogmatic about his beliefs. He believes what he believes, and he reminds me of of a neighbor I had one time, Brother Don. He said, this is my opinion, and it ought to be yours. And uh, that's Zophar. This is my opinion, and it ought to be yours. Zophar is very dogmatic about his beliefs, and he thinks flat out that Job is wrong. Look, if you will, in chapter twenty. Verses 1-4, through then Zophar the Namathite replied, This is why my unsettling thoughts compel me to answer, because I'm upset. I have heard a rebuke that insults me, and my understanding makes me reply, Don't you know that ever since antiquity from the time a human was placed on earth, Now, do you hear his opening line there? We won't read the whole chapter, but just catch verse number 4. That's his opening line. Zophar says, man, I'm so upset I can't hold it in. Here it comes, Job. I'm coming for you. And then he starts out saying in verse 4, don't you know ever since antiquity, ever since the beginning of time, ever since God made man and put him on this earth? In other words, he's about to say, There's some things we know, Job, and it goes all the way back to beginning. All the way back to creation. All the way back to day one. And who are you to think you've got some other idea that's different than that? That is how strong Zophar is coming on. Skip on down to verse 29. In verse 29, he closes it out by saying, This is the wicked person's lot from God. The inheritance God ordained for him. So if you use it as bookends, verse 4 and verse 29, basically what Zophar says, look, Job, ever since the beginning, God has said, here's how I'm going to treat the wicked. And that's the way it is. And so here you are, you're going through horrible tragedy. Come on, man. Fess up. We know you've done something. Quit acting, you know, like you're in church. Get real, man. Be honest. We know you're wrong. We know you've done something. I mean, he's... The, the prosecutor of the bunch. And so all this said, can you imagine being Job? He's already asked the why question. Why is this happening? Why, why, why? And, and at some point, you know, when you're hurt, when you're suffering, you never really maybe get an answer to that why question because that's kind of the way life is under the sun as we're, we're looking up, trying to figure it out. And once you begin to wrestle with the why question, at some point, reality kicks in. What am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do next week? What am I going to do next month? In other words, how do I move forward from here? And, and, and what do I do about all of this? And so past the why, how do I cope? How do I cope with the pain? How do I cope with the suffering? Well, what I want you to see, I'm going to give you a couple of points here and we'll be done, is that we need to look to Jesus to learn how to cope with pain. You see, um, there's a couple of places here where Job said something. If you remember earlier, he said that uh, if only he could uh, have an advocate, someone that would argue his case before him like someone argues on behalf of a friend. Well, look, if you will, in um, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9.24 and two things I want you to see today is that Jesus is our advocate. Earlier when we read, Job was saying, you know, I, I see him in the heights. Uh, I, have, I have an advocate in heaven. And, uh, and, and I wish that somebody could argue uh, uh, my case before God like someone would argue on behalf of their friend. Well, that was his desire. That was his words. But I want you to know that it's true. It's real. Jesus Christ, he came and he is our advocate before the father there in hebrews 9:24 the bible says for christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands it was only a model of the true one but into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of god for us. In other words, the writer of Hebrews says when Jesus went into the temple, he didn't go into the earthly temple. He went into the heavenly temple, which is the true temple, the one that was on earth. The, remember, remember when God was uh, speaking to Moses on the, on the mountaintop? We always focus on the Ten Commandments because he came down with the Ten Commandments, but that wasn't all that God gave Moses on that mountain. Not only did he give him the Ten Commandments, but the Bible also shows that he gave him blueprints, if you will, to the tabernacle, which became the temple. Build it this way. It's going to look like this. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. All that Moses wrote, okay? All that Moses wrote. Well, where did those blueprints come from? Why does the temple have to look a certain way, certain dimensions, and the the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant? Why are all these things necessary? Because they exist in heaven. And Jesus entered the true temple that's in heaven, not made by uh, man-made hands. And what does he do? The Bible says that Jesus is now appearing in the presence of God for us. He is our advocate with the Father. Isn't that good to know? That no matter how bad it gets down here, no matter what kind of bad day, bad week, bad month, bad year you experience, if you're a child of God, you know that you have an advocate with the Father, and He's in heaven. And He's praying on your behalf. He's praying for you. Now, you know, I don't know about you, but I can remember being younger, and I can remember uh, every other weekend I'd be at my grandparents' house, and I would sort of sneak in there to see what my granddad was doing, and he was praying. Okay, he was praying every night to Brother Don before he went to bed. He kneeled at his bedside and he prayed. And, and as a as a small child, I'm curious, he does that every night. What's he got to talk to God about this time? And you, you know, you're listening. And, and, and it didn't take me long to realize that he was not only thanking God and, and praying for direction from God, but he was praying for people, probably for his little nosy, bratty, you know, grandson, right? Uh, But uh, I've often thought about that. Think about people in your life that God has put in your life and they love you and they're praying for you. And sometimes you get comfort knowing, oh man, you know, I've got this prayer warrior, she or he or they, they're praying for me. And that's good, right? Now, max that by a million. You've got Jesus Christ. He's your advocate with the Father. And he's right there at the right hand of the Father right now. And he's praying for you because you're his child. Wow. What a comforting thought. What assurance we have that even though it's rough sometimes down here under the sun, as a child of God, we've got an advocate in heaven who's praying for us on our behalf before God Almighty. That's awesome. Well, the second thing I want you to see is this. You know, Job cried out uh, there in... uh, Verse, uh, chapter 20, I believe, a while ago, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And one of these days, my eyes will see God. What a statement of faith. Can I tell you that is so true? Jesus is our Redeemer. He said, I know my Redeemer lives. Jesus is our Redeemer. If you're still there in Hebrews, look at Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And we are told some wonderful things here in Hebrews 7, uh, 25. The the author of the letter says this, Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. You know, Paul made a great statement one time in Romans. He says, if we're saved by Jesus' death, how much more are we saved by his life? Now, what does that mean? It simply means this. We're saved by the death of Jesus. He came, he took our place, he received the punishment that you and I deserve. He died in our place and we are saved by his death. He, he paid our sin debt that we have before God and, and we're now declared not guilty. Um, we're, we're pardoned because he paid the price that we should have. We are saved by his death. But guess what? It gets even better than that. Not only are we saved by his death, we are also saved even more so by his life. Not only did Jesus die, but guess what? He rose from the dead. And he lives forevermore. He will never die again. And now he's at the right hand of the Father and he lives forever to intercede for us, to pray for us. And so think about that. You know, whenever we struggle, whenever we stumble, uh, we've been forgiven. But not only that, our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, He lives. And He's, He's there by the right hand of the Father and He's praying for us. And He's pulling for us. I don't know about you, but what kind of assurance do we have in Jesus? How do we cope with the pain? Now, I know I didn't get into all the particulars, but here's the point. If you know that God is greater than everything else and that God loves you and He is praying for you and He is your advocate, you may not feel like it, but He's your advocate in heaven for you and He's your Redeemer. Not only did He die for your sin, but He lives forevermore. Your Redeemer lives and one of these days you will see Him with your own eyes. Here's the picture. When you know that that is coming, when you realize that at the end of this story called life is the the goodness and the glory of God, and if you are a child of God and know Him, one of these days you'll be with Him forever, and it's going to be all glory. No more sickness, no more sin, no more death, no more curse that comes from sin. None of that. To know that that's the last chapter, to know that that's how it all ends, it makes me lift my chin up a little bit. Instead of looking down, instead of getting overwhelmed, hey, this thing ain't over yet. God's in charge. God is writing the story. And the story's going to end, and it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be good. And so the translation is this. No matter how hard it gets now, right here, I know that one day, someday it's going to be better and that's enough. That pulls me through. That, that drags me alone on my, on my worst days. It drags me along, But I get there. Why? Because I realize that I have an advocate in heaven. And I realize that my Redeemer lives. And you know what? That makes all the difference in the world. So how do you cope with pain and suffering i guess in the real world we all do it the best we can but i sure would like to do this for you today just grab your chin and say are you looking up take it all in for a minute do you realize there's more to the story the final chapter is amazing it's almost like the 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 movies that you watch that make you cry you know what i'm talking about you go to a movie and, and, and all of a sudden there's a scene, and, and oh, it makes you cry. Oh, no, look what happened. Oh, what are they going to do now, you know? And you, you get all, you know, tore up, and it pulls your heartstrings, and you're like, ah, you yeah, I don't, know, I don't like movies that make me cry. But then you stick in there. You hang in there. You stay in there. And the next thing you know, you you see the story begins to turn. Things begin to change. And by the time it's all said and done, hopefully, it's a great ending. Well, you know what? God's story has a great ending. And it's my prayer today that you won't miss that. You won't miss that. Because see, life does have a final exam. Someday, one day, you're going to stand before God. And you're going to have to give an account for everything that you said and everything that you've done. Are you prepared for that? Well, I can tell you, there's good news. And the good news is that God sent His Son, Jesus. And He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. He took our place when He died on the cross. He did it for you. And three days later, He rose from the dead. And now He lives forevermore. He proves that He is the one and only Son of God. And now He offers to you and I a gift. A gift. You don't pay for it. You don't earn it. You don't even deserve it. But it's a gift. He offers the gift of eternal life to anyone who will turn from their sin And trust and follow Jesus. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsomerset.com.